we're live. Greetings from wherever you are on this planet called Earth. I'm Brother Minister Zumbi, co-host of the show Precise Thinking, um, here with uh, Brother Sekou, who's in a warmer spot than I am tonight. <laughs> yeah, two up and two down for VA. It's nice and warm out here tonight. Whew, but it was actually snowing in another part of Hampton Roads about two hours ago. So, hey, the oh, weather is the weather, man. It's 2022. Yeah, we got about four, I think about four inches in upstate New York. So um, people are still shoveling themselves out from what was left on Friday. What? Well, yeah, so we're not doing what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> but what we are dealing with tonight is mm-hmm. this article... Yes. Black spending power reaches 1.6 trillion with a T as in trillion, (laughs) not billion, not million, but T trillion, Mm -hmm. 1.6 trillion. But the net worth falls 14 percent. So incredibly. We're spending more and we're worth less. I'm not saying we're worthless. I'm saying we're net worth less. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> we're net worthless. Okay. Mm. Um, so um, let's chop it up, brother. You're the, you're the, I was going to call you the minister of information, but, you know, Minister Zumbi, you have all the research. So bring the goods, bro. Bring the goods. Okay. You, you know, I kind of question the the number 1.6 trillion personally i think it's closer to 2 trillion if not over 2 trillion um and i want to get into some basic economics okay first things first spending power the term spending power or purchasing power is an oxymoron anyone who is a student of economics knows that real power comes from production not consumption Okay, so that number only proves what we can consume. Okay, and if we were to look deeper into the numbers, most of that 1.6 trillion is from employment. And for African people, the number one employer of African people in America is government, be it city, county, state, or federal. Okay. So most of that purchasing or that spending power comes primarily from employment, particularly working for non-African entities, be it in the corporate, private, or uh, government sector, okay? And we have to ask ourselves, as much as we are, quote unquote, spending or purchasing How much are we producing? How much of that $1.6 to $2 trillion are we actually using to become producers and to create an increased value in the market? That's when you know that you have real power with your dollars. And I'm not the first to say this. Uh, Dr. Claude Anderson, uh, Poweronomics, taught this. Uh, Dr. Jim Klingman out of Cincinnati with his Blackonomics philosophy has taught this. 
uh, other people, Dr. Amos Wilson, Dr. Juwanza Kanjufu, and others have all instructed us that we need to be producers if we want to have true economic power, not only domestically, but globally. So that's the first thing that we need to, you know, get clear. Also, so, so, yeah, so before you continue, so spending power is an oxymoron. Yes. So there's no power in spending. Mm-mm. If you're not, if you're primarily a consumer, ask yourself the question, what value do you bring to the market? How do you increase value? to the market as a consumer. And especially if your consumption exceeds your production. Okay. Good so, point. So that's, that's something that African people really have to look at. You know, you brag about these numbers, but ask yourself this question. If you have that much money coming through your hands, ask yourself, why is it that our unemployment rates are disproportionately astronomical to other demographics in America. Okay, with that much coming through our hands, there really should be no unemployment issues among us. And it's something Dr. Amos Wilson once said at the Slave Theater in, in, in New York City. He says, the true wealth of a people is not in the land or whatever tangible resources we have, the true wealth of a people is in its consciousness. And I would also add in its culture, okay? We can have all the resources in the world, but if we don't have the knowledge in order to organize it, organize the information, organize the people, organize the resources and maximize it, it's, it's practically worthless. You know, for, for those who uh, subscribe to the Torah or the uh, Old Testament in the Bible in Proverbs 17, 16, and I'm paraphrasing it, it says, what good is it for a man to get paper if he lacks the desire to learn how to manage and master it? Okay, so so I think we need to really begin to step back and say, what is what is power, particularly in terms of economics? Intriguing, intriguing, intriguing. So when we bring this information up, yes, we just chatted about how the spending power is really an oxymoron. There's no power in spending. Right. But net worth falls. So. Mm-hmm. How has our net worth fallen 14%? If we're spending more money, how has our value dropped? Okay, now let's let's talk about net worth, okay? Net worth is really what I would call a theoretical number. And there's a formula where you basically take your uh, assets minus your liabilities and your income or revenue minus your expenses, okay? And if we were to go through as a collective and look at our people and we were to ask ourselves, 
as a collective, we're talking, you know, 50 plus million people of African origin in this country. Do our liabilities exceed our assets? Number one. Okay. Number two, uh, does our expenses exceed our income or our revenue? Okay. Now think about it. Uh, there's a brother. I don't know if you ever heard of him. Um, his name is Sean Rochester. And he wrote a book called The Black Tax. I got it somewhere in, 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 in one of these boxes here. I'm familiar and, with the title. Okay. So if you think about amongst our people, okay, we may be high income people, but because of certain obligations or duties we may have in terms of family, in terms of taking care of elders, senior citizens, or what have you, we really don't have the, the, the resources to create our portfolios. OK, and to acquire assets because we are always trying to handle certain obligations. So we don't have an opportunity to accumulate what I call IGAs or income generating assets. You see, so when we talk about net worth, you have to ask yourself, what is in our portfolio? Or do we even have a portfolio at all? You see, so so there's certain there's certain financial realities that that we have to take into consideration when we're talking about um, when we're talking about net worth. Okay, now if you want to talk about like the new buzzword is quote unquote generational wealth. Everybody's talking about generational wealth. Okay, there's three enemies that that I've identified as. Uh, enemies of building that generational wealth. One, taxes. Two, inflation. Three, bad money habits. Okay. And really of the three, inflation is probably going to be the most insidious because here's, okay, let's look at it this way. If you say that according to this article, from CNBC, 1.6 trillion in purchasing power. Okay. How does inflation erode at that? Particularly when the real number for inflation, according to uh, Josh Tolley, is running at about six to 10%, as opposed to this 3% that everybody's been quoting. Okay, so exactly, it is a hidden tax and it's a very insidious tax as well. So if you've got something external that is eroding at your purchasing power, like, okay, I'll give you an example. In 2019, I could walk into Walmart and get a gallon of cooking oil for 386. Now, here we are, it's February 2022. That same gallon of cooking oil that I could get three years ago for seven, eight, or for a strike for 386 is now 786. Okay. 
And then another thing you have to also understand, for those of you who are employed or your job is your primary source of income, I want to remind you of one thing. Your job, by its very nature, can never keep pace with inflation. At best, you may get a 5% annual raise because a job is not designed to keep pace with inflation. Okay. It's not designed. It's not not designed. designed. That's whoa, whoa. It's it's not designed to do that. Because think about it. Okay, let's say and I have friends who work for New York State government and they're a part of the state union. Okay, there's two SEIU and CSEA. Okay. They were in exactly (laughs) they were in contract negotiations. And they had negotiated a five-year deal. Now, here's the problem with that. The first three years, you don't get a raise. Year four, you may get a 2 to 3% raise. Well, here's the problem. You've already lost three years of purchasing power because inflation has kicked in an average of about 6%. Okay, so that's why Mm. I said by its very nature, a job can't keep pace with inflation. Which is why you need and I say this in my book and one of my principles where you you need multiple streams of income and particularly a stream of income that can generate passive and residual income. All right. Right. For the uninitiated, what are passive and residual income? Okay, passive and residual income, I'll explain it this way. Let's say, okay, myself being an author, all right, I just wrote my book, and you can see it in the corner, The Gospel of Afronomics Theology. So I worked hard for three years to organize the information and put it in a book form. I uploaded the manuscript to Amazon, which serves as a distributor. Now what I do is I drive traffic to the website so people can pay for the book without me physically showing up for it. So every month I get a check from Amazon, which is what's called royalties. Okay, so I'm making money in my sleep. It could be a lot or it could be a little, but it's money I don't have to work for. Okay, that's what we mean by passive income versus active income where you physically must show up somewhere or you must physically be doing work. Okay, so that's passive and residual income. Okay. What what was I what was I talking about? Bro, (laughs) you were going deep, man. You were going deep. (laughs) But you were saying that one of the ways that we can address the situation because jobs were not designed to keep up with inflation right is by having some production that provides you with passive or residual income because we're talking about fixing this bs you know the black spending power is reportedly according to this article you know it says it's 1.6 trillion we've already discussed that black spending power spending power itself is really an oxymoron what we're trying to do now is make sure that the net worth 
stops declining. Mm-hmm. Right? And yeah, and, and and the main thing in in order to change this is that we have to change not only our mindset, but our culture. You know, one of the things in my core beliefs in my book, I talk about the need to to have what I call an African-centered entrepreneurial revolution. Okay. Historically, whenever you whenever you see uh, an oppressed or disenfranchised or displaced people, when they use entrepreneurship and microenterprise to improve their condition, there are multiple benefits, not just tangible benefits, but intangible benefits. And the intangible benefits, one of them is that now you feel a sense of empowerment. You feel that you are contributing to society, that you are creating value or increasing value in the market, which is one of the reasons why when I look back at these stimulus packages that were passed out uh, when, when the pandemic initially started, I asked myself, you know, it's interesting that in that package, you couldn't have taken maybe 10 to $20 billion, allocate that to local chambers of commerce across the country, SBA offices and score offices, to where you can begin to teach people about entrepreneurship and financial literacy. Okay. Now, I have no issue with offering stimulus checks. That's more of a, I guess you would say a jump start. But when you look at an economy, okay, an economy that is predominantly employee driven, I dare say it won't survive past the third generation if it gets there. Because again, every economy is built on production, not consumption. And for African people, if you're going to live on this planet, there's four questions you need to ask yourself. What do I own? What do I produce? Uh, What do I control? And what do I distribute? Wait, 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 wait. (laughs) Rewind. Okay, I'm going to say that again. There's four questions we, you know, individually and as a, a collective, we need to ask ourselves. What do we own? What do we control? What do we produce? And what do we distribute? So are you saying if you're able to answer those four in a profitable manner, you're more likely, more than likely to exceed inflation and not have your net worth drop? Is that what I'm hearing, bro? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why I said that there needs to be a shift in how we think. You know, many of us were given the thought process of our predecessors who emerged out of the Great Depression. Okay, now we're not dismissing those values because they were necessary at the time that it needed to to happen. But as we evolve and really ever since 1971, the rules of money have forever changed. We've been in a fiat economy for over 50 years now. And what I mean by a fiat economy is before 1971, the US dollar was backed by 
precious metals such as silver and gold. So on August 15, 1971, Richard Nixon divorced the U.S. dollar off the gold standard. And the reason that he gave that, uh, for the reason why he did that, is he said that he wanted to preserve the gold reserve supply from foreign nations who would come in and just buy up the gold. Okay. In fact, there was a time where no U.S. citizen, it was illegal for any U.S. citizen to own gold at the time. Now, we're talking early to mid 70s here. Okay. So when you have these type of changes, your money rules change and how you handle money must change. Okay. It's no longer money, it's currency. So the money must move. In fact, the money must hustle harder than you. It's not one of those days where, okay, I can park it in a bank and get an annual percentage rate of about 15%. Those days are gone. You're lucky if you get 1%. Lucky. Mm hmm Yeah. I don't, wow. even think, I don't even I don't even think you can get half a percent now with the way uh, things are set up now. All right. Well, we dealt with, you know, the report from actually a few days ago, February 1st, 2022, saying that our spending power is one point six trillion and our net worth has declined 14 percent. So when you look at this information that says that. You know, it says that the the black spending power is up 171%. The Latino spending power is up 288%. The Asian spending power is up 383%. The U.S. overall is up 144%. They left out the whites. They left out our white brothers and sisters. I'm not sure why. It's all good. But why did our spending power go up? What's a we have always been the number one consumer. In fact, we um, we are what you would call uh, quality consumers. Okay, we just don't consume goods. We're always consuming name brand goods. Okay, so it's not enough to just get a handbag. It has to be Gucci, Prada. OK, because what researchers have realized is that as a people, we have always been loyal to brands. Hmm. OK, and so they cater to that. You know, I remember reading about um, and I'm going to date myself here. Uh, the Bartles and James wine cooler back in the, the 80s. OK, um, and even before then, the Gallo brothers, Ernest and Julio Gallo. What they did or what they realized in their research is that African people enjoy drinking flavored type of alcohol. So that's why you would see uh, various fruity flavors of wine, you know, mixed berry, uh, grape, you know, that sort of thing. So when they do research on us, they study our patterns, our trends. 
And then what they do is they they cater to that. You know, today that's beginning, that's called surveillance capitalism. Okay. Where Teach. you basically take the information and the demographics you study, and now you begin to not only forecast uh, buying habits, but you can also dictate buying habits. You know, now we can talk about that in, in another show, but we have always been a quality consumer. And what people have known is that we are always loyal to brands. Okay, where, you know, like, let's say if we talk about sneakers, some got to have Nike, some got to have Adidas, some got to have Under Armour. You know, I remember in the 90s when, you know, people felt that they needed to have uh, Tommy Hilfiger. True. Okay, so they know that we are always been a loyal brand consumer. Okay, so we're probably more sophisticated than than the average American consumer. So that's part probably part of the reason why um, that number has skyrocketed. But then we also have to measure that number against what has been our production. You know, so yes, we're consuming more, but what are we producing more? Are we producing more uh, black owned businesses that generate uh, a gross uh, annual revenue of at least $10 million a year because the federal government, the way they define small business is any for-profit entity that generates less than $10 million a year gross. Okay. Yeah. Salute to Ryan James. Our people yes. big on consuming yet own very little stock ownership in those companies in which we consume. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I had a situation where I was talking to a group of teenagers and I just did a little experiment. Okay. I, earlier in the day, I had read in, um, in USA Today's money section that Under Armour, they have class A, class B stock. Um, it averaged about 15 to $17 a share. So what I did, I asked the young man, I said, okay, who has a pair of Nike Air LeBrons? Um, nobody did, but somebody pulled out a pair of Under Armour Steph Currys. And I asked the individual, okay, how much did you pay for, for these Steph Currys? I think he told me like a buck 50. Okay. And I told him for that same amount, he could have went to the New York Stock Exchange that day and bought 10 shares of Class A stock in Under Armour. What would I, that have done for him? Well, what that does is now, just like the brother mentioned before, ownership. Now you own what I call IGAs, an income generating asset that can give you residual income. Okay. If you buy the sneakers, it's a one-time deal. Okay. You may use them for what, six to eight months, and then you throw them away. Okay. You buy these 10 shares of Under Armour. Now 
you get to watch the value increase, the dividends that you earn at the end of the quarter, you can put it back in to buy more shares and deal with the you know stock market split. Okay, so we have to get into a mentality of making the money work for you and not you working for the money. Mm. If you're serious about building generational wealth. All right, do the knowledge, brother. Do the knowledge. Keep it going. <laughs> I'm loving this. <laughs> okay, so and, and that's why I said mindset. You know, for those of you who may have read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Um, go back to the first rule in the rich dad philosophy. The rich don't work for money. Okay. What do they work for? They work to create and purchase assets that can generate infinitely passive and residual income. That's what they work for. Okay. They don't work for the money. Because the money in and of itself has little to no value. But it's what it's the knowledge you have and knowing what to do with the money that determines your poverty or your prosperity. Exactly. And you'll find all six of these rules in the first book in the Rich Dad series. All right, so do the knowledge on lessons two through six. Why should we pay attention to this? Why is this? Why does this matter? <laughs> As Crumb would say, why does this matter? <laughs> why does it matter? No matter what you do on this planet, money is going to affect it. Okay. In fact, I'm going to read something from my book. Uh, the Gospel of Afronomics Theology, and I'm going to read from the beginning of the Q&A where I talk about what is the importance of studying economics. Okay, so question. Why should African people be concerned about economics and its role in the liberation of African people? African people in America have a gross domestic product. Now, gross domestic product, it measures a nation's productivity. Okay. A gross domestic product, or for some of you old as I am, it used to be gross national product. Of nearly $2 trillion inside a nation with a $19.75 trillion GDP, U.S. dollars. Yet our productivity falls short of the target. If we have as much capital flowing through our hands, how can 44% of America's homeless be African men? And 52% of America's homeless be black families. Why is our unemployment rate so high, especially amongst our youth? Why is there a disproportionate number of African women with children turning to social welfare programs? We need to begin asking what we can do with the resources we have and how we, quote unquote, vote with our wallets regarding how we use or misuse our financial resources. And then the next question, how does economics affect the lives and livelihoods of African people? 
Economics affects where we choose to live, where our children attend school and college, who we marry, how we will retire, how we donate to charity, and anything else that deals with our quality of life as a people. There is no way to avoid the topic of economics or what I now call the science of beef, beef being business, economics, entrepreneurship, and finance. So we need to understand its importance and appreciate its impact on our lives. Wu-Tang Clan was correct when it coined the phrase, cash rules everything around me. I say that. Hey, the queen, Gloria Miller, dropped in a nice little black history note. The first Texaco men's room toilet paper roll dispenser was invented by a brother, Harlan Jamal Washington. Hey, with the name Harlan Jamal Washington, <laughs> we know that was a bruh. Hey, okay. salute Gloria Miller. Thank you. Thank you. That, that was beautiful. That was beautiful. Now, it's now, interesting I, that, now, it's interesting that the sister brought that up. Because I would have to go into this question. Mr. Washington invented the toilet paper roll. Is he receiving royalties from that invention? Or his family receiving royalties from that invention? Okay. And you and I, we've read stories, we've heard stories about, you know, some of our brightest that have created inventions but receive little to no royalties for it. And that's just one example of developing residual and passive income. Okay. One of our, one of our scientists, um, I don't know if you're familiar with a brother named Lonnie Johnson out of Atlanta. Ooh, you talking about Mr. Super Soaker? Yes, sir. Okay. Now, uh, brother Lonnie actually developed the idea by accident because he was working on developing a heat pump and something had happened and he discovered something by accident. And he says, hey, this might be a great idea for a water gun. So for the next seven years, he worked on developing the prototype, which he finally got done. Uh, he was able to hook up with a toy company at the time was based in Philadelphia and they had developed a partnership. Now, when you invent something, there's one of two choices you can have. You can either build a business around it yourself, or you can team up with an existing manufacturer and you agree to receive, you know, maybe a nickel or a dime on the dollar. Okay. I think his deal was, I think it was a nickel on the dollar, but they didn't expect it to do as well as it did. I think the initial uh, earnings was like a billion dollars. Now, subsequently, the uh, company based in Philadelphia was eventually bought out by Hasbro. Okay. And I think within the past few years, uh, Brother Lonnie had to fight with Hasbro because he realized that there were unpaid royalties that he wasn't receiving. So he won a court order or he basically won a court case where Hasbro had to pay him nearly $75 million in back um, in unpaid royalties. Okay. 
And so now he's taking that money and he's created his own laboratory because he says, I don't want to be strictly known for inventing a toy water gun, you know, because his background is basically being a NASA engineer. Okay. Now that, like I said, that may have given him claim to fame, but he wants to be known for more than just that. I say that I was just teaching my students about that <laughs> in my math class. You know, I teach algebra yeah. and we were looking over the numbers and showing how we could use algebra to extrapolate and do all the equations needed to create his uh, wonderful super soaker, which right. was originally called the uh, the drencher, I think. Mm, all right. Okay. Yeah. All right. So we talked about the black spending power, one point six trillion. We talked about the net worth falling. We talked about why we've gone up one hundred seventy one percent in quote unquote spending power. Why do you think the Latino and the Asian in America have had such a large change in their spending power? You know, the Latino was gone up two hundred eighty eight percent. The Asian has gone up three hundred eighty three percent. Now, I'm not saying that's a good thing. <laughs> mm. I would rather see our net worth increase instead of our spending power. But um, why do you think the Latino and the Asian has jumped up so tremendously? If if you look at those communities, okay, I'm willing to bet you that as their purchasing power increased, so did their productivity. Okay. And I'll give you an example with the with the Asian community. Um, I used to do security for the New York State bar exam. And what I had noticed was that there were a lot of Asians who would come in and take the New York State bar exam. If you can pass the New York State bar exam, it's like having a black visa. I think you can practice law in about 20 states. OK, so it's, it's really like having that black visa. Why did they do that? They wanted to engage in international banking and finance. OK, so they have a way of uh, creating what I call economic synergy. OK, where there's within their ethnic enclave, there are businesses that complement one another and that dollar can begin to circulate throughout that that ethnic business community. OK, same same with the Latinos. I mean. How many of us have at least one Goya product in our kitchen? I have more than one. I have to <laughs> I, I have to admit, I have a little more than one. I, and even after okay. the president of Goya said all that, well, he I think he was, quote unquote, canceled because he supported our former President Trump. Um Okay. You know, I didn't support either one of the Democrat or the Republican, so I right. wasn't set tripping when they uh, when he supported Trump. I, I like Goya products. Um, okay. So, and and then the same thing where, at least up here in Albany, you know, I would be you know going around town doing errands, and I would always see uh, these Asian trucks that are coming from New York City. Okay, whether they were bringing you know food for the restaurants or uh, napkins 
things of that nature. So there's like a, a, a built-in infrastructure where manufacturing and distribution can take place. Okay. So in many cases, they may be buying from their own people. You see, and that's the importance of culture because it impacts everything that we do, particularly when it comes to the science of beef. Okay, now that's a speculation, but I don't think I'm I'm too off, too off base here. Wait, hey, give your definition of beef because <laughs> okay. it's not Biggie Small's definition of beef. No, um, beef is an, an acronym which stands for business, economics, entrepreneurship, and finance. You know, Abulaj Muhammad said that there were three sciences that a people needed to study and master in order to become sovereign and to have uh, any sense of civilization. And that first one is what I call the science of beef. OK, the other two being the science of diplomacy, negotiation and warfare. And then the third one being the science of mate selection and genetic engineering. All right. So when. Uh, the old white woman said, where's the beef? <laughs> <laughs> we need to walk into our neighborhoods and say, where's the beef? Mm -hmm. We need to go to the Congressional Black Caucus and say, where's the beef? We need exactly. to go into Ebony, Jet Magazine, <clears throat> and some of the other white-owned media corporations that seem black fronting and say, where's the beef? <laughs> yes. And once again, the beef stands for... Business, economics, entrepreneurship, and finance. All right, so NBA young boy, where's the beef? You know? <laughs> <laughs> Saweetie, where's the beef? Megan the Stallion, where's the beef? You got the WAP, where's the beef? Okay. Cardi B, you got the WAP. You're spending a lot of money with, um, a lot of money. <laughs> Okay. Where's the beef? And I like these folk, you know. Uh, I, I left out city girls. <laughs> I should probably leap, put them in there. You know, they like the rodeo. So I love I love the city girls. Ah, so city girls, you know, everybody want to love JT. Well, my question is, where's the beef? Okay. You know, it's like everybody wants to brag about, you know, uh, how much money they got. You know, Cardi B had, a, had the lyric or the chorus that says, how she's making money moves, but where's the power moves behind the money moves? Okay, because you've got all these rap artists with all this money, but you still don't control the distribution and the manufacturing of your product. Okay, you still don't have a means of dictating policy to the FCC and the RIAA. Hmm. OK, and I know you remember in the 90s when P. Diddy came with all about the Benjamins and he says he's stacking chips like Hebrews and they made him take that out of the song. <laughs> yes. Yes. OK, you should so, do what we do. Stack chips like Hebrews. Don't let the melody confuse you, <laughs> deceive you. Don't let the melody right. deceive you. Yo, he was dropping a gem right there. Yeah, but they you should him. do like we do. Mm -hmm. Stack chips like Hebrews. Don't let the mil don't let the melody deceive you. Don't let the music deceive you. Mm -hmm. Yo, yeah. that, that was a gem. And they made him take that lyric out of the song. So all the money that he made, all his net worth, 
and he can't control content on his own album. Hey, you know what? I think we're, we're going to upset a couple of folk here because people just want to get along with everybody. But uh, as Crumb says... Family, this is not the get-along game where everybody... We're all going to go... We're not playing that kumbaya game where everybody gets a trophy. No. No, no, no. Well, I'll nope. put it... Yeah. I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll use a quote from, from, the, from the Honorable Marcus Garvey. Power is the only argument that satisfies man. And I think I've been on this planet long enough to realize that what makes the world go round is not people, is not gangsters like West Side Connection says, it's power. Ooh. Okay. And if you really want to understand that, this is what I call another holy scripture, Blueprint for Black Power by the ancestor, Dr. Amos Wilson. I say. No matter how you try to explain the condition that African people are in, it boils down to one premise because the enemies of African people have the power to do what they do to us. And we lack the power to protect ourselves from that. Well, well, you know what? I, I appreciate that information on the spending power because when we looked, whoo, when we looked, here it is. Yeah, the black went up 171%, Latino went up 288%, Asian went up 383%, the United States of America overall went up 144%. But when we look at the U.S. net worth, yes. So, <clears throat> In 2001, the black community's net worth was 28,000. It's currently 24,000. Mm-hmm. It's gone down 14%. The Latino in 2001, the US net worth was $17,000. Now, that's not good at all. 28 and 17 are not good at all. But the Latino currently is 36k. It went up 112%. And our white brethren, 178K. And currently, you know, 178K in 2001, currently 189,000, up 6%. And the United States overall in 2001 was up 200, I mean, 125,000. It's currently 122,000. So in the United States of America, it's gone down 2%. But our white and Latino family have moved up 6% and 112% respectively. While the black, not the Afro-Latino, not the mixed race of biracial or mulatto. You know, when we say black, we're bringing all of those in that. So, um, hey, 14%. Although I'm thinking it's foundational black Americans predominantly. 14% downtrodden. So, why has our Latino brethren and sistren gone up 112% while we've gone down 14%? I think you've already answered that, but I just wanted to hear that again. Okay. It, it all goes back to productivity. And I've got another 
what I call economic holy scripture, and I'm going to put it in front of the screen so everybody knows to pick it up. This is from our elder, Dr. Claude Anderson, Powernomics, okay, and his other book, Black Labor, White Wealth, where he talks about and he actually predicts how through political and economic empowerment that the Latino Hispanic community uh, will have the political and the economic power to, I guess, basically replace African people as the uh, so-called uh, powerful minority, and I hate using the word, in America. And it all goes back to empowerment, and it always goes back to uh, organization. Okay, and here's the other thing that that I that I talk about is a term I call cultural cohesiveness. Okay, when you look at Asians, when you look at Arabs, when you look at Latinos, when those immigrants come to America, they basically come number one by choice, and number two with their culture intact. African people, basically, we were dragged here as POWs. OK, and one of the things that was done to us is that our culture. They waged war upon it. And did everything in their power to destroy it. OK, so when we get into these conversations about economics, the problem is we do not look at it through an African centered lens or an African centered paradigm, which is why it's easy to put millions of dollars in the hands of athletes because you know they're not African-centered. Same with our entertainers. How many of them are African-centered enough? Think about this. If, going back into the late 80s, if NWA and others, when they started making big money, what if they decided to start buying local radio stations before the deregulation in 1996 by the FCC. Ooh. So are you saying that they should have taken their financial situation and empowered their environmental situation? Absolutely. Because think about it. It makes it much easier for you to break local artists onto the music scene because now you control the means not only of production, but distribution. Ooh. Okay. And this is what our elder Bob Law was talking about is when you, when you have the money, you must have the mindset in order to build a power base. This is why I was talking about when I used the term economic synergy, where you control everything from the manufacturing and the assembly to the end user or retail. Okay, okay. Okay. You know what? One of one of the things I love about you, brother minister, is you don't bring opinions. <laughs> you bring the research. Now, in this article that we were dealing with, you know, in this article, this young brother okay. talked about six strategies that he thought would improve the situation. Okay. And he mentioned that black home ownership is down 3% since the year 2000. 
Okay. And he was saying that black families build 300 billion less wealth annually, and the racial wealth gap is 11 trillion. And part of the reason is because black home ownership is 3% down since the year 2000. So he gave these six strategies. Here are six financial decisions that can help bridge the racial wealth gap. Okay. (laughs) Now, I want to go through these very quickly, and then I want to get your response to these strategies. Mm -hmm. Personally, I don't think we need to worry about the racial wealth gap. I think we need to seek empowerment in all the areas that we can Mm -hmm. because an empowered people won't have a gap. Check. All right. But the six strategies that he talks about are owning a house, owning a profitable business, having savings and investments, having a will, having life insurance, and improving your credit score. What say you? Okay. I think what what needs to be discussed is developing what I I guess you would call a wealth building cycle. Okay. And what I mean by that is assets before liabilities. Okay. When Robert Kiyosaki came out and said, your house is not an asset. Okay. The entire financial industry had a Richard Pryor moment. And looked at Robert Kiyosaki and said, that shines crazy. Okay. Ten years after Rich Dad, Poor Dad, he was proven correct because we saw what happened with the predatory lending. And we saw what happened with the real estate bubble when it burst in 07, 08. Okay. So I'm not against purchasing a home. I'm just saying, take your emotions out of it. Look at the numbers and the numbers will tell you whether or not your home is an asset or a liability. Okay. So for me, if I were to look at that chart again, the first thing that I would say is we need to create and purchase IGAs, income generating assets. Okay. You don't really want to create debt unnecessarily. The only time you want to create debt is is the debt going to help you create more money? Okay, because you think about it. Okay, everybody gets a 30-year mortgage. You don't own a house until that mortgage is paid off. True. And even when you finally pay it off, you still have to pay property taxes on it. So is there really such a thing as a homeowner? When, when good question. Really good it. question. Okay, because what we, um, and that's why I'm saying we have to really begin to be more precise thinkers, and particularly when we start dealing with you know the science of money and the science of beef. Okay, we can't continue to use things that no longer make sense now. Okay, what's being talked about now may have worked during the industrial era, post Great Depression but not in this new economy. The rules have changed. And like that old Michael McDonald song, things will never be the same again. Mm. 
Okay. But there's a lot of people who are trying to, quote unquote, bring back the good old days. Those days are gone. Like I said, you can't just park your money and think you're going to get 15% interest annually because there's nothing back in the U.S. dollar. Okay, so your thinking has to change about money and how you acquire it. You know, I have a saying, it takes courage to make money, but it takes intelligence to keep it. Okay, okay, okay. Okay. And right now we need not just intelligence, but relevant information. Okay. And and I'm going to throw another book out there. You can probably dig it up. It's in the Rich Dad series. It's called Rich Dad's Increasing Your Financial IQ. In that book, <clears throat> there's uh, five ways of, of strengthening your financial IQ and financial intelligence. And I'm focusing on number five, where it talks about having relevant and proper information. And uh, Robert Kiyosaki uses being in the Vietnam War. That's the book. Okay. Okay. He says that the information that he may have had today is irrelevant tomorrow because if he's being fed bad information or irrelevant information, it can cost lives. And so for, for, for African people, when you start looking at money in this climate, Make sure your information is relevant and in real time, because the information you may be giving out may create financial fatalities when it doesn't have to be that way. Okay, so that's really one of the main things is make sure that the information that you're getting is relevant. Okay. Okay. Can we say that um, owning a profitable business is relevant? You just said that owning a house may not necessarily be relevant, mm. but owning a profitable business, is that a good strategy? Yes. Um, in fact, if you're talking about building generational wealth, it's a must. Okay. There's, there's no other way around it. You need to have a profitable business, whether it's brick and mortar, e-commerce or a combination of things of the two. OK, so we definitely need that. Um, the other thing that I saw where it said savings and investments, more investments than savings. OK, because the money has to keep moving. That's why I call it currency. You can't just park it because if you park it, it'll eventually go to zero because inflation will kill its purchasing power. OK, so we need to have, you know, profitable businesses and we need to have uh, investments, you know. And investments, most people talk about uh, paper assets. OK, OK, OK. Now, well, OK, go ahead. before you move on, bro. So we talked about owning a house, a home. Um, we talked about it's important to have a profitable keyword, profitable make a profit <laughs> business um you just talked about savings and investments yes why is a will important that that's a show in and of itself 
and, and I'm going to tell you why. Let's take a look at our entertainers. Three in particular. What do Whitney Houston, Aretha Franklin, and Prince all have in common? Their ancestors. When they made their transition, there was no will. And when there's no will, things go into probate. Okay. So between Uncle Sam, uh, state tax, and if the record label, you know, has a lien on the estate, in the case of Whitney Houston, I think there was a lien that Sony had on her estate. So between Sony and Uncle Sam, by the time they got done with the estate, there was nothing left for her family. Okay, Aretha Franklin had a net worth of $80 million, but no will. So who owns her catalog? Prince had a net worth of $350 million. But guess what? The battle that he had fought against Warner Brothers, he ultimately lost because guess who has not ownership, but total control over his catalog? MCA Universal. So if there was a will, even if it's a living will, okay, you can prevent situations like this because now you, in your right frame of mind, have designated who you want to have certain uh, assets and belongings. Okay, that's a part of, and, and I mentioned this in my book, the importance of asset protection and estate planning. Okay. Okay. Mm. Okay. Okay. All right. Life insurance, brother. We're just going to go through the list. We talked yeah. about the home. We talked about the business, investment, savings, a okay. will. What's the um, deal on life insurance? And as a person who, well, I'm not going to talk. You talk. No. Go ahead. Um, life insurance. Um, I, I've heard different things about life insurance. The important thing is, uh, especially if, if, let's say if you're a primary breadwinner, you know, I have a friend, he works at FedEx office. Uh, just recently, he's recovering from having an appendix removal. And it, it was an emergency surgery. He had it removed Christmas Eve. He's the primary breadwinner in his house. Now, God forbid, if something had happened to him, does he have a life insurance policy that can replace the income that he was bringing in that can take care of his family inside that household? I say. Okay. That's that's just one reason why you should have life insurance is to make sure that in the event of your passing, your family wants for nothing. Okay, okay, okay. I agree with that. I actually have a a beloved person who's going to be an ancestor soon. He's um actually dying as a result of a lot of health problems. But mm. he was just tested positive for COVID, and so we're looking at maybe two or three days uh, before he becomes a, uh, a elevated ancestor. And uh, mm. today we were able to make the phone call to one of my friends, who's the agent that sold him a life insurance policy. So, okay, um, yeah, we're going to help do the financial planning, so his wife and his children will be uh, taken care of. And so in credit score piece, 
What's the? Okay. It, would you would you have increased? I mean, let me see. Let me say that right. Would okay. you have included improved credit score on a way to close the wealth gap? Um, me personally, no. Um, now, if you're talking about business credit, that's another story. Okay. True. Because what I what I look at is this. There's a thing I call the Rockefeller rule. The Rockefeller rule says own nothing but control everything. True. Okay. And there's something that's missing in that list. And what I mean by own nothing but control everything, you know how rich people stay rich? And you can find that in Rich Dad, Poor Dad, the chapter where he talks about the power of taxes and corporations. Okay where everything is done in corporations and trusts. Nothing is done as an individual. True. Okay. Nothing is done. In fact, I'll give you an example. Now, a lot of people say, well, you know, before you get married, you should get a prenup and blah, 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 blah. I've heard attorneys say that a prenup is not the best vehicle to protect your assets. I've heard that as well. I've heard okay. that as well. What what one attorney recommended was what's called a domestic asset protection trust. Okay. Now, let's say you've got a let's let's say you've got a buddy in Omega Psi Phi. Okay. And he's looking to marry again. Okay. And he's accumulated a lot of assets over over the time. What he can do is instead of getting a prenup, he can actually set up a domestic asset protection trust, put all of the assets into that particular entity. The future bride doesn't have to know a thing. And you can go ahead and step down the aisle. Oh, OK. So, OK. All right. <laughs> We're going too deep. <laughs> well, I'm just giving you, I'm just giving you that, an example. That, that's got to be a show unto itself, brother. Right. That's got to be a show unto itself, brother. <laughs> but, um, but that's just an example of, you know, in, in that, uh, that, that step, there should have been about creating corporations and trust. Okay. Because, right, right. again, if we're going to talk generational wealth, you have to change you know, you have to understand the different rules of engagement. It's no longer checkers, it's chess. Well, speaking of chess, not checkers, um, tell us about your book. You know, let's go ahead and go out and uh yes. um <laughs> hey hey tell us all tell us all about your book, man. Tell us yes, all about this, the book. This book, uh the gospel of Afronomics theology, um, many have called it their um I guess you would say economic holy scripture for African people. Um, I've had people send me pictures where it's right next to their Bible or Quran. All right. This book is African centered, uh, African centered way of looking at economics. It's really over 22 years of personal experience and research in what I call the science of beef uh, business economics, entrepreneurship, and finance. And the reason why I wrote it is because there's a lot of books out there on, on finance and investing and so forth, but it's not done through 
an African-centered lens. And so what I tried to do was to write a book that does that, but it also passes what I call the Pookie, Ray Ray, and Junebug test. <laughs> okay. Because I wanted to be able to be understood by the grassroots. Okay. So... <laughs> Hey, you know what? We we probably need to add a woman's name into that, man. Fatima. <laughs> All right. All right. Yeah, because cause some of the aunties, man, they give some of the wackest <laughs> advice. <laughs> I was talking with a client the other day. Um, mm. <clears throat> you know, I was talking to a client the other day because they wanted to get involved in doing the rehab work that I do. So, okay. you know, I'm able to provide people with rehab money when they're doing real estate deals and i tell you her auntie told her some crazy stuff and mm -hmm. i said well you can listen to your auntie who has zero experience in this regard but they love you mm -hmm. you can listen to me right who has experience in this regard i may not love you but i want you to profit Exactly. You know, so we a lot very often we listen to the wrong people. And and there's a saying sometimes the most expensive advice is free advice. <laughs> I say to that. I say to that. So uh hey, talk about precise teaching, because I tell you what, in the precise teaching thing that you've been doing, whoo, you've been dropping some jewels, brother. One of my favorite is the piece on cultural tithing. And yep. so let's talk about very quickly cultural <clears throat> tithing, how to be a cop mm -hmm. and to be a 12, I mean, $20 revolution. Ooh, I can't talk tonight. <laughs> Go ahead, bro. Cultural <laughs> tithing. Drop okay. the gem. Drop the gem. Do the knowledge. All right. Cultural tithing. That's uh, principle number 19 in, in, in the GOAT book. Principle 19 talks about cultural tithing, where a dime out of every dollar should be given to a race first organization. And I've given this example in the last show, let's say brother Sekou, um, mega means is coming up Tuesday. I don't know what the jackpot is. So brother Sekou, he goes down to the gas station, gets his tickets Tuesday night. They show the number he hits. He then sits down at his desk, writes a check, 10% of his winnings, now these are all pre-tax numbers, 10% of his earnings, he gives it to Omega Sci-Fi. Okay, that is cultural tithing because he is part of a race-first organization that looks out for the lives and the livelihoods of African people. Okay. okay. All right, so let's go to the next joint, man. Let's go yes. to being a cop. Being so a you cop. want us to turn into 5 <laughs> <laughs> this has nothing to do with with snitching or putting on a badge. This is about being a creator, owner and producer, particularly in this post pandemic climate. We really need to create, own and produce the means of our production and our distribution. And in the last show, we talked about being an infopreneur. Uh, this is the perfect time. Uh, to to be a cop. In fact, that's probably one of the better business models where you can be a cop. 
I say that. And become a $20 revolutionary. We're going to end with this one. Yes. It's a campaign that I came up with where I said, okay, what is one thing that African people can do without having to protest and march and scream and everything else? Being a $20 revolutionary. Let's say every week you make a $20 purchase to a Black-owned business, be it brick and mortar or e-commerce. If you were to do that over a 52-week period, you would have put $1,040 back into the hands of Black-owned businesses. Now, if you expand it to, let's say, 50 million people, of African origin in America. If they were to take that on in a 12 month period by being a $20 revolutionary, we would have shifted $52 billion back into the hands of black owned businesses and back into our black economy. So something as simple as being a $20 revolutionary, you can affect change. And and let's do the last one. Uh, The one we're gonna have to add to the list. What's beef? (laughs) Beef. Beef is an acronym. The science of beef is business, economics, entrepreneurship, finance. Okay. Which is really what the uh, gospel of Afronomics theology is. It basically deals with the science of beef, which is uh, something that needed to be viewed through an African-centered lens. Okay. <laughs> I wanted to make sure we got that down right. right. What's beef? Business, beef. economics, entrepreneurship, and finance. Yes. Okay. Okay. All right. We've been listening to another great episode of Precise Thinking. Take us out, brother. Like I said, make sure that the information you get is in real time and is relevant. 